Hello, and welcome to another episode of What's That Noise, a podcast that pursues matters of confusion and clarity, however and whatever that means. Today we are joined by Benjamin Muller, professor of political science at King's University College and researcher in biometrics, borders, borderlands, architecture, and a number of other very cool things. We have a jam-packed show for you today, so sit back, relax, and enjoy. Before we sat down today, I had a look at Benjamin Muller's profile, and I realized that there's no good way of introducing this guy. I've known Ben for a long time. I've got a lot of wonderful things to say, but I'm going to let him introduce himself because there's just so much to talk about. You've written so much. You've traveled the world so many times. And from what I understand, you were just away recently at the International Studies Association. Ben, please tell us about that and yourself. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, uh, Derek and Tom. I really appreciate being a part of this. Uh, I'm an avid podcast listener um, of many podcasts, including this one. Hey, uh, we've, we've got a listener. Wow, there's <laughs> at least one. Oh, man, I'm jazzed. <laughs> I haven't rated it yet, so it's probably not showing up. <laughs> one okay, star. I'll, I'll be nice. <laughs> um, so thanks for that introduction. Um, what I can say uh, to start with is I like the fact that in your introduction to the show, you mentioned the word confusion. Uh, and I think when uh, when I even reflect upon my own uh, career thus far, I think that's a reasonable uh, statement. Uh, I've certainly so I, I, you know, early on in my career. Well, let, let's go. Maybe I'll go way back um, for a little bit. So, um, 1989, which is certainly prior to the lives of any students that I ever teach, um, was a really key moment for me. Uh, I had family on both sides of the Berlin Wall, and so it sort of touched me and, and certainly sparked greater interest in politics. I would say I already had a fair bit of interest. I did grow up in a house where political debates at the dinner table was a, a part of life. But it also made me interested in things like walls and borders and boundaries and, and migration. I think also having uh, parents who were both uh, immigrants, post-war immigrants, was, was also a part of that. So, so those have really stayed with me to this day. Um, and so my interest, particularly in terms of my PhD on, on borders and, uh, you know, I got into the whole biometric technology stuff, uh, that, that sort of all stems um, from that point. Now, the, the problem arises, as you will both know, that when you're doing dissertation research, you start to get sick of it. Uh, you know, it lasts a long time and, you know, you're, it's very solitary and you keep addressing these issues. And so... There's a longing to kind of move beyond that. Uh, I wasn't really allowed to for a really long time. And to some extent, I would say I'm still not. Uh, because the more you do in it, the worse it gets. Um, because people start asking, oh, can you do something on biometric borders for us? Um, and Academic I'm also, pigeonholing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm also bad at saying no. Um, so I say yes and continue to do these things. Um, but I have managed to sort of carve out some other spaces where I've been able to do some other projects. Um, a kind of really big trajectory that, that's been going for 
probably nearly 10 years now is with a, a very good friend of mine, Samar Aboud, um, who lives in Philadelphia, who does work on, on the Middle East, predominantly Syria, Lebanon. Um, and we did a book together on Hezbollah, and we're, we're doing a project right now on kind of foreign intervention in the Middle East as a kind of purveyor of local insecurity. So that's a kind of stream as well. And then I have another stream that's really just, I would say, very indulgent, um, a sort of long, long-standing interest in design and architecture and so on uh, that I've kind of married with my interest in borders. And so I personally am looking at you know, questions about architecture, design, aesthetics when it comes to borders, ports of entry, and such, and uh, have managed to be able to meet a lot of exciting and interesting people to gather together as part of this project, Tom being one of them. Um, in a book project, and hopefully that emerges uh, as an even larger research project. So that's kind of where I am with all of that. Uh, and in between all of those things, I, I drive uh, my eldest son to a lot of hockey, and, uh, you know, and I love to cook. I don't know if you've been in his office. No. But he's got these Lego, Lego architectural things all over the place. Have you, have you built any recently? I have not, no, um, but I have been, I, I was actually just on my recent trip, so I was in San Francisco for the International Studies Association, and I had the opportunity to go to the MoMA there, and they had an actual Lego architecture, like, coffee table book, and it, it actually goes along with a new set of Lego that doesn't have instructions, but just, it's a huge set of pieces, and you can cr- construct your own architectural designs, um, but yeah, I have... Um, I've been interested uh, for a really long time in Frank Lloyd Wright's work, and so I've got Falling Water, and I've got the Guggenheim Museum, and uh, out of Lego. <laughs> wow, I gotta check out this office now. I have just nothing. He's got other cool things in there too. I mean, the Lego architecture is definitely something to check out. But he's he's also got this bowl of jelly beans. Dude, should I talk <laughs> about this bowl of jelly beans, or you want to tell us about the bowl? Of jelly uh, well, beans? so. Well, the first point is that at, at the moment, maybe it's just because uh, term is ending, and so I'm a little bit feeling a bit nicer towards my students. I have uh, dark chocolate in that bowl. Um, but I have, for many, many years, had a bowl of jelly beans in my office. Um, one of the reasons is that uh, Ronald Reagan introduced jelly beans to the White House um, in their meetings, and I thought this was an interesting kind of talking point with students as they came into my office, um, partly due to a somewhat twisted sense of humor. Uh, I also had a, an interesting collection of jelly beans in that bowl. So I would have a typical kind of gourmet mix and then a variety of other types that probably just wouldn't go really well together. Can you give uh, us an example? Um, so, I mean, I, I think I recall Tom maybe once having like, you know, cotton candy together with smoked cheese and jalapeno as sort of flavors. Or, Beautiful. You know. I'm, I'm pretty sure there was one that, that tasted like earwax, but they may have just been a ball of earwax. So Probably stu- my so, own. So the students don't know what they're picking at. They, they don't they, know what they're getting. No, they don't. And usually by the look on their face, I can tell if they've made a wise or unwise choice, um, which, will, <laughs> uh, which will then uh, launch me into uh, a lengthy discussion about uh, Ronald Reagan and his uh, you know, introduction of jelly beans to the White House, so particularly it- if they've had a, made a bad choice. Mm, you turn it into a little bit of a pedagogical moment. Uh, the very first year that I ever taught as a professor was in Ben's place when he was on sabbatical. And that would have been, what, 2014 or so? 2014. So I got to use his office, and that giant bowl of jelly beans was there. And when I met with students and they would come in and pick away at the jelly beans, I'd say, okay, not that one. Nope, not that one. Not that one, but you can have that one. 
And sometimes I'd miss and they'd just be disgusted. And it made for a lot of laughing and there was a lot of confusion. And we found our clarity by learning like a color coding system for that year. These are the ones that you can touch and these are the ones that you can't touch. Ben, you were, you were talking a little bit about a, a trip away recently. And I, I really think this would be a great, great moment to start with because I've been to these, these, con- these conventions with you in the past. It's how you introduced me into the academy. Ben was my master's supervisor and in a lot of ways uh, remains my supervisor, kicking my butt left, right, and center. Adding a little advice when, when needed about uh, writing and surviving the dissertation process. And, you know, having gone to these, these conventions with you, I think for me, the, the thing that was so distracting and so difficult to navigate was just the size of it. So this is one of the biggest conventions in the world, isn't it? In terms of our field it is, I mean, I know that people who work on the sciences and so on would, would experience much larger conferences, but um, so it's, it's the International Studies Association, which is an American-based organization, a um, professional academic group, uh, but they do, primar- they do appeal to a broader audience, but it still remains American, and they tend to attract around 6,000 participants um, at their events. So it, it is a sizable conference. Um, at any given time, in terms of looking at a panel, there's usually roughly 80 concurrent panels running. Um, so, I mean, I think just off the top, one of the issues you have there is the propensity for uh, preaching to the converted is quite high. Because if you have 80 choices, uh, the potential of you choosing something that is as narrowly possible uh, and similar to your own interests and perspectives, um, that's quite likely going to happen. And so you're not going to hear a lot of conflict in that sense. Mm-hmm. You find that it's, uh, so in my field, uh, the American Sociological Association's annual meeting is sort of the big, the big kahuna meeting. And, and we tend to find a little bit of network, elitist networking uh, happening where the same people go to the same panels over and over. and it's just a network that sort of moves around the conference together. Is it the same at ISA? A- absolutely. Um, there's, you know, in terms of our field in international studies, um, I mean, the field of international relations itself is an Anglo-American field. Um, and the kind of stalwarts of the discipline remain American by and large, and they continue to go there and continue to kind of foster bands of graduate students who follow them around. And, and so there is this kind of roving caravan of these people at the conference that they occupy the, the greatest space, I would say, not only in a kind of material sense, but in a broader sense in terms of the ideals and perspectives of the organization itself. Um, and so as a result, the ISA remains a relatively con- small C conservative organization. Yeah. And do you find that they focus on American issues or uh, the U.S. as, say, a reference group? referencing the world in relation to the United States? Absolutely. I mean, international relations does that anyways, mm. right? I mean, as a field, this is, this is one of the problems with both international relations and comparative politics as fields in terms of how they are constructed. And, you know, if you do, you know, as, as Robert Vitalis uh, recently wrote a book called White World Order, Black Power Politics, and looks at a kind of sociology of the discipline of international relations in the United States, And so, you know, what he does so well in there is talks about how in really material terms, dissenting voices, specifically African-American voices within the academy, 
were frozen out of funding and of being part of that discipline. And I think, you know, there were many stories at the, the recent ISA that would underscore that that hasn't gone away by any stretch. And so it still really remains about, you know, the paragons of the field are the individuals who have access to the State Department effectively. Yeah. Um, and, and yes, there are others of us in smaller rooms presenting critical work, but we're not in the ballroom. You know, let's put it that way. And it's not in the middle of the day either. Right, right. What time do your panels usually happen? Well, uh, probably the two best panels I attended at this conference, um, other than my own, of course, but I, I, that happened to be a pretty good panel, but uh, that, that was not necessarily the best. But the two best were at 8.15 and at 4.15, mm. um, you know, at either end um, of the spectrum. I mean, there was a great one on the Anthropocene at 8.15, and then there was, you know, a... Uh, which was a classic kind of critical ISA move where at 4.15, there, there are a variety of panels that are um, basically honoring major figures in the field. Uh, in the case I attended, it was uh, the work, Timothy Mitchell, who's done excellent work on the Middle East, um, wrote a fantastic book, Colonizing Egypt, and one called The Rule of Experts. Um, he is not a member of the ISA. This was the first time he ever attended this conference. Yet his work has been so highly influential in the field. Um, but he sees the ISA as this kind of conservative, you know, overly simplistic, as he argued, kind of organization that simplifies a lot of the issues it's dealt with. But they put that at 415 and they line it up against another post-colonial scholar. So people have to make a choice between these two, um, you know, dividing the same audience, which is very typical at, at the ISA. You've been going to these these ISA conventions for a long time. And it's interesting listening to you talk about the kinds of panels that take place in the ballrooms, the showcase panels. Has it been predominantly consistent in terms of what they actually talk about, their specific interests, the topics that they tend to or tend not to respond to? Let's say it just, for example, in the case of the last 10 years, has it been pretty consistent or is it becoming more responsive? Well, uh... So what I'm going to do is a classic academic thing and not answer your question <laughs> and, and use it as, a, as an invitation to, to tell a, a slightly different story. So I don't know if, if uh, everyone's aware, but quite recently, I believe it was just in the past couple of weeks, it was uh, the 15th anniversary of the 2003 invasion of Iraq um, by the U.S. Uh, I attended the International Studies Association conference uh, in 2003 in Portland, Oregon. And it was roughly the same time of year. So it was very, very close to the actual, everyone knew the invasion was, was imminent at the time uh, of the conference. At that time, the president of the ISA, which is a rotating person, an academic who takes up that, that role, uh, was Steve Smith, who, although in many ways I wouldn't say is a kind of paragon of critical thinking, uh, he has actually, particularly he comes from the British school and, and he is you know, actually been fostered a lot of critical thought. He had a presidential address to give, as, as everyone does each year. And that year, he had uh, a police escort for his presidential address. Uh, and this, um, for, for any listeners or students who are out there, and Tom, you may know this too, uh, it was later published, as they always are, um, and it's uh, known as the Singing Our World Into Existence article where effectively he indicts um, the discipline of international relations as bringing the world of and the events of 9-11 and afterwards um, to us, that effectively that kind of 
view of the world that the discipline created made, made this happen. Uh, and at that conference, there was a variety of protests, most of which were broken up, and the ISA would not make any kind of political statements about what was going on at all. And for me, it's a really was a really important moment. Um, there was a time where, for example, a whole variety of, of attendees of the conference lined up on a staircase in, the, in this kind of grand hotel in Portland with their mouths taped closed. Um, and organizers contacted the local police and said there was a safety issue that the stairwell couldn't hold all of these people. Um, well, that's one it, way to clear the note. <laughs> absolutely. Um, but for me, uh, the reason I always think about this, and, and I've, you know, since that time, I was, I was finishing my PhD at that point in time, but now I've had the opportunity to serve on the governing council of the International Studies Association and kind of seen from within how conservative an organization it is. And how, you know, at this conference now, as we are, have a 15th anniversary of this event, the decision of the ISA to kind of acknowledge that was not to focus on the statements made by Steve Smith, but rather was to focus on whether or not the intervention was a realist or liberal project. And have, um, shall I say, geriatric colleagues in the discipline coming up and kind of recycling a lot of the same old ideas and not addressing basically our role as scholars in, you know, creating a kind of world vision that makes those sorts of decisions logical um, in the same way as the kind of decisions we currently see uh, likely being made um, by the White House uh, in Syria. Yeah, I was about to sort of go there uh, in terms of that sounds a lot like what's happening currently it, it sounds really similar to what's going on uh, in the world right now where we're in this moment of transition in international diplomacy if you will uh and i was wondering what's the role of uh, uh your work and the work of your colleagues um in in that discussion in that dialogue about whether or not um there should be uh airstrikes there should be a, a military intervention in places like syria and iraq Right. Well, I, I won't talk about my discipline's thoughts on that because I get tired of doing that in my uh, second year uh, politics class. Do you feel like you're back in a classroom right now? This <laughs> no, is no, just no. my kitchen, I no, promise. No. Yeah. Um, so, so I think that there's a few things to say here. I mean, the, the first is, and, and I, I noticed that at, at this ISA conference more than I have in past, and I think it, it shows the age of myself and, and a lot of my companions, is that, you know, most of us have tenure. Uh, we're not at the beginning of our careers anymore. And so our perspective and kind of freedom to have those perspectives, I would argue, has changed. And so we, we kind of collectively feel that, like, gloves are off now. And there's, there's no reason um, for the pretense or anything anymore. And, and just, like, call a spade a spade. And if it's uncomfortable and disturbing for people, that's unfortunate. Uh, and so, uh, you know, when it, when it comes to dealing with Syria right now, I mean, there, there's a whole, whole variety of things to say about this. Um, you know. Whether Mr. Trump is going to, you know, launch 50 or 100 cruise missiles again, as, as roughly a year ago he did, um, you know, I, I'm not sure. What, I, what I'm sure about is that it will have no effect, as it did roughly a year ago. I think a deep question is to ask, I mean, A, why is it that the United States perceives itself in a place to be this kind of global policeman? Um, the United States itself uses a variety of banned munitions regularly. It doesn't seem to perceive that as problematic. Uh, it's used white phosphorus uh, in the attack of Fallujah. It uses um, cluster munitions, um, which are completely devastating. 
you know, it sold chemical weapons to Iraq. In fact, the preceding sale, you know, leading up to that sale, they recategorized Iraq as a, as a different sort of state so that they could, in fact, do that trade. So there's a long history of, of the U.S. doing these things. So part of me, I'm sort of like, why the moral outrage? Mm-hmm. Um, then the other point is, you know, if you want to do something to make things better for the people of Syria, I think like one option is pretty obvious. It's to get people out of there. Uh, what we do, the one thing we know and no one will disagree with is that if you are a civilian in Syria, it's pretty well one of the shittiest places to be on earth right now. Um, it sucks. And so if we want to do something, get them out. So let's say the United States says, oh, why don't we accept between, you know, 250, 500,000 people? And, and Andrew Basevich talked about this on, on The Intercept on the podcast. And I think it's a really key point. But for all Western states, we can ask this question. And then we can realize pretty quickly that our own states and societies would not be terribly accepting of these kinds of numbers. But somehow we will accept, in particular in the United States, we will see a kind of acceptance of the use of cruise missiles or, or whatever kind of military uh, intervention is proposed. There will not be a buy-in from the public that ought to be required in terms of Congress because it will be bypassed and they will quickly you know, muster the funds to do this. And so this has a lot more to do with the military-industrial complex and I would say a kind of increased exceptional power where one of the key problems to me not unique to the United States, but it's kind of the head of the spear is the way in which populations are frozen out of these decision-making processes. And the use of force ought to have a lot more critical reflection around it. And it simply doesn't. And I mean, this, this dialogue goes back decades, if not longer, where we're in this sort of a colonial global world where we, we tend to dehumanize particular cultures. And we tend to other um, particular groups of people based on religion, based on political uh, posture, based on a whole bunch of things. Uh, it doesn't seem to be new, and yet the, the uh, dialogue around this threat is like this is some new emergent threat. And, and I find that sort of, sort of fascinating, um, that we tend to approach these, these wars or these conflicts as something new. Um, when when the Western world has been sort of forcing these these locations and these people into doing a variety of things against the Western and it's, world. And it's precisely general. that critique that that we, the three of us, might look for mm-hmm. in popular places, mm-hmm. in media, for example. And we're not going to find them because somehow they're not patriotic. Because somehow it's so far removed, it's so radical of a critique that it's just simply not heard. And it makes me wonder, you know, even if a population were to be brought into the manifold, so to speak, even if they were to be queried about what should we do as a nation, what things could we actually learn? What would we hear? In the age of fake news now, in the abundance of garbage online and confusion, how can we as sociologists even make sense of these sorts of things? How do you proceed? I'm not sure if we could talk to an entire population or what techniques we'd use to figure out how should we deal with Syria. Because there's going to be an injection of crap and misleading ideas out of the White House regardless, or Russia, or around Syria. Not just the White House, those are propagated by a very uh, large group of people. Call them internet trolls, or, or call them alt-right, 
Um, it's it's not just the news coming out of the White House that might be fake or might be misleading. I just can't help but to think about Trump at what whatever time it is that he sits down to to do his tweeting. You know, at seven a.m. at the Oval Office, just banging out nothing, mm. routinely banging out nothing, and people listen to. Him. People oh, of course, it. he's the president of the United States of America, he's the also largest Donald Trump. <laughs> uh, military in the world. Uh, so yeah, people will listen. And I think exploring those messages, those are some noisy messages we have there um, that we're getting, that we're being sent from the White House. There's a lot of misleading information or potentially erroneous information, but it's noisy and its uptake is noisy across the public sphere. Um, and it's creating or potentially creating this sort of polarizing community where half of the community is um, so against the other half and vice versa that it's uh, it, no one knows where we're going in the future. No one knows where the conflict is going to manifest. Safer to sit on the fence. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like what, what we're talking about here are, are sort of competing arrays of noise um, mm-hmm. in a sense. Um, on the one hand, we have, I mean, probably a president who's capable of producing noise for the sake of obfuscation greater than, than any before. And, and I think there, there's an extent to which it may be hard to know whether that's purely about Trump the person or to what extent this is connected to the evolution of our media and so on as well. And I think, you know, it's the same thing when, you, you know, you, Obama is the drone president. And yes, that's true. But it does so happen that that technology kind of comes on the scene and, and escalates in terms of its availability alongside his presidency, too. And so I think there's a little bit of that. And that, so that's a kind of noise in terms of Trump's, you know, you know there I go to, to the ISA meeting. I see all these tweets from the meeting about these old timers debating over, you know, whether the invasion of Iraq was liberal or idealist. And I just think like WTF, like what a waste of our time. I get to my hotel and turn the TV on and there's Trump talking about, you know, some roving caravan approaching the border where their levels of rape are like unbeknownst to anyone, like higher than ever imagined. I mean, you know, he's talking out of his ass because he has no idea. This is a president who's openly admitted to having meetings with other world leaders, including our own in Canada, being unprepared and openly lying. So that's a kind of noise. The other noise is, I think, you know, what what Tom was asking in terms of if we get the population engaged, what, you know, that can be a helpful noise, a kind of public debate um, about these issues. Legitimate is, you know, we think about like Gore Vidal's statement, the United States of amnesia. To what extent, you know, is everyone completely unaware of the historical precedents? Are people, you know, not, not equipped to engage with, with these kind of issues? And so how helpful or productive will that noise be? I think that's a question. Um, but I'd still rather see how that plays out on that side, as opposed to being purely subjected to the noise of the White House and then an incredibly lazy liberal media that simply replicates the noise um, and to some extent like kind of mirrors it back um, on itself. So, you know, I mean, the, the other day there was an article in the New York Times talking about this Netflix uh, program, Black Mirror, and, and saying that like, you know, viewership is going down. Um, because basically it's, it's, it's kind of boring mm. um, to people because it, they, they see this every day already. <laughs> There's nothing new in, in, in the program. Um, this is what life is like now. 
Um, so they say a lot of what they think are these really stellar moments in the program just kind of go thud. Um, and so that, that's, we're sort of in a, there's so much noise, but it's so much of the wrong kind of noise. And, you know, you can't really control noise. Um, so I think I'd just rather hear different noise and see where it goes. Um, but we're not, it, we're not being given the, the possibility for that kind of noise to emerge. Do you imagine as an academic that the work that you're doing will be able to parse some of that meaningless, unnecessary garbage noise, the noise that's political. I, I thought that when I got into the academy through my training, and some of our research dovetails, international political sociology, critical security studies, that we can create interventions in noise. We might not call it that, but amongst the lack of precision and understanding certain issues or world events, amongst the generation of assumptions, we will use certain methods, certain theories, certain arguments to try and open up a more meaningful and productive conversation. Do you feel as an academic at this point in your career, tenured, you're no longer warming me up as a TA, just leaving my undergrad, what does that mean for you now? I mean, that, that's a tough question, Tom. I think I, I would say for myself, it's a question I ask myself all the time. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure both of you do the same thing. Um, you know, we, we spend a reasonable amount of our time in classrooms with young people. Uh, I still, in spite of all the kinds of, you know, critiques of whatever generation happens to be in front of us, I, see, I still see a lot of hope. I still see some really engaged people. I still see people willing to actually put in a fair bit of work. And that's what it takes at the end of the day. Um, you know, we had a discussion in my class yesterday about trying to get kind of, you know, different takes on, on what's going on in the world. I don't even recall the specific issue we were talking about. But, you know, you can, but it, it, and, it, and it's all there. There's far more of it than there used to be. But it takes a lot of work to wade through all of that. And there are people willing to do the work. And I, I see sometimes our role as, as almost like tour guides. You know, we, we kind of maybe, we know the pitfalls. We know, you know, where, where you're going to trip on the path or where there's a hole you might fall into. Um, but aside from that, people have to find what they find and see, you know, they're going to see different things on that tour than I may even know is there, but I can just try to keep them safe in a way. Um, and so I think that's, that's a, a key moment. I mean, I used to think it was things like, you know, speaking to parliament or whatever. I, I don't believe that anymore. Um, having spoken a, on a number of occasions to special committees to, to, to parliament, um, that's nothing but a dog and pony show. Um, I would say it's such an, a kind of illusion of legitimacy that's going on there. Um, you know, you get invited by the kinds of people that agree with the sort of things you have to say. The people who don't um, immediately perceive you in a partisan manner and shut down to most of what you have to say. And at the end of the day, you know, that's, in, in my view, kind of rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. You know, we're, that is not kind of engaging in the way that we need to engage, where, you know, we need to go back. It's, you know, I, I have students, like, I have an excellent student talking about things to do with refugees and migration and, you know, whether the Dublin Convention is correct and all these things. And it's great. But at the same token, to me, you will not change things unless you take a few steps back from that. 
and think about the ways in which it doesn't matter how many conventions we have and states signed to them, they ignore them. The European Union that's perceived as some kind of paragon of human rights and so on, you know, is leaving its refugees in Turkey in a state that doesn't even declare them as refugees, you know, is funding uh, Libya that's, you know, barely even a government funding its Coast Guard um, to make sure that these ramshackle boats never make it across, you know, is putting no funding into rescuing people as these boats fall apart. And so the sea becomes this kind of, you know, I mean, I, I would argue there's something to be said uh, in this in terms of research that when we look at global migration, states have realized that nature is a, is a fantastic unpaid um, border guard. Um, you see this in the Sonoran Desert. You see this in the Mediterranean. You see this all over the place. The Himalayans. Absolutely. And so I think all of that and, you know, our ability to kind of push that and I think there is something in, in doing that. And I think, you know, there, there are thoughtful people who read. <laughs> this does happen um, as much as maybe we, we get jaded and think it's not true. Um, <laughs> I think doing things like this, to be honest, is, is you know, this is going to reach a much wider audience than our classes of 14 students in a senior seminar. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm hopeful. For that, if if I weren't, then I you know I might as well stop what I'm doing and, and go work at the corner store. So you you mentioned there that 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 uh, special Senate committees and talking to Parliament is almost a uh, a relatively worthless endeavor. Um, so have you moved away from doing that in your career in your professional career, or uh, do you welcome the opportunity to do that uh, in the future? Or Oh, this kind of opportunity, I really want you to share what that last time you were in Parliament was like. I watched this. It was televised, and it was interesting. Yeah, okay, I can, t I can talk about that. Because so I, I think the answer is going to answer your question, too. So I had the, the, the most recent time was, was the time Tom's talking about. It was a, uh, a special committee in Parliament to do with, um, it was related to migration and they were looking effectively at how we could replicate something along the lines of the U.S. visit system, which is now part of the Office of Biometric and Identity Management, um, to basically have a biometric visa system, enter and exit. And uh, I, the first point was the person I was speaking alongside happened, he, he was a doctor um, that um, provides medical services uh, for uh, refugee populations. So people who are asylum seekers, so they have not yet had their hearing at the refugee board um, before the conservative uh, government had removed the health care for those individuals, uh, the Canadian state provided health care for them. And there was a big debate within the room before the discussion began whether or not that was a security issue. So that in and of itself was fascinating, um, whether or not, you know, the health of asylum seekers in, in Canada was a security issue or not, because this was supposed to be about migration and security. Then, you know, they finally allowed him to speak. Then it was my turn. I sort of gave my point about biometrics, which was by and large that, you know, these are not evil, that this is not the point. Um, but at the same token, uh, there is data out there about uh, a reasonable amount of unreliability associated with the technologies. There's very little data about the reliability um, and there's very little data about something like U.S. Visit and what it, what it has actually done. Yet, it's, you know, garnered a lot of uh, attention and a lot of funding. And usually, you know, taxpayers care about where their money's going. So I, I kind of framed it in that way. Um, and it was interesting because uh, there was a, an, an interaction with one of the members on the committee 
who, you know, he, he was trying to put me in my place and basically say I didn't understand what I was talking about. And um, because part of my argument was that we need to promote more um, human intelligence, humans at the border, humans doing these things, in part because I, I, n- none of the data I've ever seen suggests they are less reliable than machines and technology. And there is a duty of care that individuals have that machines do not. And I think when we have people at the border, that's important, whether we're thinking about it in a security context or whether we're thinking about it in a variety of other co- contexts, that duty of care is, is part of this. Um, and he kind of went off and, and got quite upset. And, and I don't even remember how I, I sort of threw it back at him, but I, I didn't, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an odd context too, because you've got this microphone and like when the light's not on, you, you know, you can talk, but nobody can hear you and, and they can turn the light off when they want and stop <laughs> listening to you. Um, which I'm sure like my students would love some sort of scenario like that. <laughs> Just yeah. hit a button. Hit the button. Like Shut I've heard up, enough. <laughs> so it's, you know, and, and I can't, you know, I, I, there have been a couple opportunities recently. I mean, I was at the World Customs Organization in, in Tunisia in September. Um, I did a report for Interpol in, in August. So I have continued to do some of these things, but I mean, the Customs Organization less so, but the Interpol report was another example where effectively they had the answer before they asked me to write the report and they you know the revisions kept being how can my report look more like the answer they wanted (laughs) and and i think that's the problem with a lot of these issues and i think the parliamentary committees the limitations have been set before you sit down and so your ability to challenge that is is pretty limited um, within those kind of confines, particularly when you think of time and space that you're given in a, in, in, in a context like that. So, Ben, you talked uh, in the beginning a little bit about um, your, your previous research and your current research and the fact that you're trying to move a little bit away from the biometric uh, stuff. So I'm curious, what is the future um, for you in terms of your research? All right. Uh, thanks. It's n- nice to talk about the future instead of the past. Mm. And the present somehow. And, yeah. Trump and the um, <laughs> Absolutely. So, I, I mean, I will obviously, like, not be able to fully escape um, the, the biometric stuff. Uh, but I, I'm really excited about the project on architecture, design. And for me, I'm looking at the border. But the, the broader project at the moment, the book project, involves people asking these questions in a variety of circumstances. But um, what I'm doing together with uh, Sean Mutlu, who's at uh, Acadia University, we've put in a, a grant proposal. So this will be a couple of years on designing border security. Something I'm looking at at the moment, I, I call it iBorder. I'm looking at a specific crossing in uh, Washington State where they, uh, the General Accounting Office in, in the United States uh, hired uh, Bolin Twinsky Jackson, who, who are known for the iconic Apple stores, uh, to design the port of entry facility. And so there is a way in which it kind of shares the aesthetic of an Apple store uh, in the way that an Apple store conceals its kind of commercial function and that you can like buy something anywhere but not wait in line to buy it at a till and so on. There is that kind of logic operating at the port of entry where kind of surveillance and security is everywhere. It's ubiquitous. Uh, Their secondary inspection area has, you know, Dale Chihuly glass. Um, piped in jazz from the Pacific Northwest, you know, while you're getting your invasive search. Um, so it's, it's a very bizarre, and, and actually the physical structure um, is concealed to some extent. So when you're leaving the United States, you actually drive over the building, and it also has a green roof. 
So there's this way that, you know, the border is is there in a in a kind of greater sense than it has been historically, but it's also not there. Um, and I think I, sort of how I frame this is it's kind of walking that weird line between this mythological history of the Canada-U.S. border as the longest undefended border and this intensified security and surveillance um, kind of deep state that's at work, particularly at the border. So I feel like there's a way in through its design and aesthetic, it's actually kind of managing that. Did you become interested in the design aesthetic of that particular designer um, before you started looking into these things? Or was it because of like an experience walking into an Apple store? Because I just, I frankly find it a strange, strange thing to do. Well, so, I mean, one of the answers to this question uh, would involve if you went into my garage at home. Um, and, and so if you first knew how many times I've moved in the past uh, 15 to 20 years, and then you recognize that there are about uh, 15 years worth of Architectural Digest magazines piled up in there, you would see that there's this long-standing interest simply in architecture and mm. design. Um, and so I've definitely been interested in the Apple stores themselves. And then I started looking into, you know, I, I forget how I came across it, but that there was a large expenditure within the U.S. for building these new ports of entry. And, you know, unlike an airport, an airport is different because they, they basically never have enough money to completely overhaul it. Yeah. So they're always kind of trying to do new cool things in an old shell. Whereas with ports of entry, in this case, they just obliterate the old ones and build new ones. And so those new ones are reflecting uh, the new policies. Um, so in the case of something like the Western Hemis Hemisphere Travel Initiative, which you know, has a kind of multi-lane strategy um, where there's, you know, in a sense, a level of different ratings for those lanes, whether you have an enhanced driver's license or an access card or a passport, the new ports of entry reflect that physically and materially. And so I sort of looked in that and then started discovering that actually they were very interested in aesthetics. Otherwise, why were they hiring these expensive firms hmm. um, to do this? And so we're really at the beginning of this. The long-term project is to actually go to these firms and find out, you know, the, the lowly uh, him or her who is sitting on their computer on AutoCAD actually designing these facilities and really talk to them about how they envision these things. How to, what is their imagination about security, for example? Um, and, and sort of how you can watch a space and all these kinds of questions. We want to ask those actual people who are physically doing it. I love that eye border. It sounds so nice. It's such a good, catchy... Uh, uh... Cloud border. <laughs> Unfortunately, they don't, uh, at the eye border, wear like different uh, unified colored t-shirts on different months of the year. So it's, you know, it doesn't share everything. They don't have iPhones and... Yeah, no, and they don't like you using yours either at the border. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the aesthetics of the space might encourage you to use it otherwise, right? Well, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's just, it's fascinating because when you're in there, I mean, something that they highlight, you know, they talk about, you know, the art installations, the, of course, ways in which the Western Hemisphere Travel Initiative is in direct contravention of the 1794 J Treaty that gave freedom of movement to indigenous peoples in North America. Yet they co-opt all this indigenous artwork mm -hmm. in their new border facility. And then they also talk about the enhanced incarceration capacity of the facility mm -hmm. while you're listening to the nice jazz and wallowing away in a cell eating some premium plush crackers. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That is absolutely fascinating. Powerful imagery. Uh, yeah. Oh. So I, I should say, though, that, like, that I, I need to give my friend credit on this, too, because there's another direction my research is going in as well. 
um, and it's not fair to talk about Chan and not talk about Samra. Um, something you may have noticed is that I, I didn't, like as much as I'm, uh, I'm an only child and maybe that's why I didn't do as well with a solitary part of research. So I, I have collaborators um, to keep me going. I also liked playing team sports more than individual sports. So maybe go that's Leafs. <laughs> go. Go uh, Leafs, I'll, go. I'm going to second that. I'll pretend I didn't hear that. <laughs> well, um, hold on a second. Hold on. <laughs> What's your hockey team? Well, I'm, I'm from the West. So the one hockey team that it's not is the Leafs. Well, we all know where this is going, don't we? <laughs> it's either the Flames or the Canucks, and I don't like either one of them. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll have to live with that. You may not. <laughs> <laughs> I love the Sedins, but the rest of it we can do without. So, anyways, the other direction uh, that, I'm, that I'm taking is with my uh, really good friend uh, and colleague, Sam Raboud, who's, mm-hmm. who's just actually making the move to Villanova University uh, in Philadelphia. He's been at Arcadia in Philadelphia. And we're doing, uh, he's involved in, in grand projects, wrote one of the best books on Syria that's out there. Um, and, and we're doing some pretty big projects on international intervention in the Middle East as a purveyor of local insecurity. Really simplistically put, how does the West kind of go into these spaces, think it has a, a one-size-fits-all solution, and then how in kind of really specific terms does that end up wreaking havoc there? And, and looking at this from a whole variety of perspectives. And, you know, there, there's a way in which, although that's not explicit, implicitly, that, that's kind of behind um, our book on, on rethinking Hezbollah. Even. Um, so, so that's kind of another big trajectory um, that, that I kind of want to work with Samra a bit more on this as I go forward. And, you know, both of those trajectories will, you know, go rapidly or slowly, depending on how many requests about biometrics I get in the meantime. Mm, yeah, you can't, uh, you can't move away from that completely, right? Uh, well, thank you so much for uh, sitting down with us. I think uh, p- potentially one of your future projects might be uh, hopefully coming on this podcast a little bit more often. As long uh, as you don't talk about the Canucks. <laughs> I, I would be delighted to be, uh, to be a part of the podcast in the future. I think, it's a, as I said before, it's a, it's a great initiative. And, uh, and maybe, you know, it will also be a kind of integral part of, of the movements at King's towards some kind of critical security studies hub of some sort. Um, so where can I listen, our listeners find you? On Twitter? I, I'm on Twitter uh, at Biometric State. Um, I've got a website, biometricstate.com. Um, so as you see, the escaping biometrics is not so easy. You're not doing a good job all that. over the place. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for sitting down with us and chatting with us. Tommy, do you have anything uh, uh, you want to end off with? I really don't like the Vancouver Canucks. Thank you for listening to another episode of What's That Noise? If you enjoyed the show, please follow us on Twitter at WTNCast, at Derek Krim, or at Thomas N. Cook. And please subscribe to our channel on iTunes or Google Play Music. Until next time, keep listening for the noise.